Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hi, this is Mom, and I'm an executive producer of HGB because, well, Diane is my daughter and Denise is my daughter-in-law. So I kind of have to, but I actually do love the podcast. Plus, they've let me co-host a couple of times. Besides, I love history. If you'd like to join me as an EP, check out the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. Now, sit up straight, get your feet off the coffee table, and don't tempt the spirits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 181st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane, and it's just myself and Tiana in the studio today. We have a location on this episode that is in Ireland, which is where our co-host Denise is also at the moment, which is why she's not in studio with us. She's having a great time representing the United States Taekwondo Federation as their ambassador over in Ireland at a tournament. And for those of you who are friends with her on Facebook, you've probably seen some of the pictures that she's taken looking all smart in her suit and some of the tourist pictures that she's taken. I got to talk to her for a couple hours last night and apparently right next to the venue, about five minutes away over the hill, is a castle. And when she heard them say, oh, yeah, there's a castle over the hill, she's like, do I get a break sometime that I can walk over there? So she did walk over there and took some pictures, got to find out the history about it. And yes, folks, it's haunted. But not only that, she told me a remarkable story that involves animals. So we're not sure if we're going to bring it to you as a bonus cast, if it's going to be an episode that we run maybe in March, or if it's just going to be a moment noddy. We're going to look at all the parameters in regards to the history and hauntings of this place. But it was really neat to hear her talking about it. She's very excited about Ireland. I know that we have quite the listenership going on over there. And just from listening to how excited she was and how she can't wait to bring me over there, I'm really looking forward to visiting the Green Isle, basically. And she said it is like being in a movie. It looks like Middle Earth over there. She said everywhere you drive, they'd be pointing and going, oh, there's a ruin over there and a ruin over there. She walked through this thing called the hedge that is just this, it looks like a gigantic bush of trees. And it's just this canopy that seems to go on and on. There was a little monument and cemetery at the end of it. She got to see a lighthouse. Didn't get a stamp in her book because it wasn't open and they can't climb up in it and had to look at it from a distance. But she was very excited she got to see an Irish lighthouse. So... She's having a good time. She's not here, so it's just me. So we won't have the fun little quips we usually get from her that usually throws me off every so often where I'm like, did she just say what I think she just said? But I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. We're going to be looking at Loftus Hall. This was suggested to us by a listener whose username is JJCBW. 
We also have in this episode the 11th installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Jason, Jorge, Erica, Lori, and Scott. And now, this moment naughty. Vesna Volovic was a 22-year-old flight attendant aboard a DC-9 heading to Czechoslovakia in January of 1972. Her schedule had been mixed up and she was not supposed to be on the flight, but she was excited for a chance to see more of the world. Unbeknownst to anyone, a terrorist group known as Ustashi had placed an explosive on the plane. This was a neo-Nazi fascist group from Croatia that had already succeeded in committing several terrorist attacks against Yugoslavia after World War II. Vesna's flight was on an airline based out of Yugoslavia. The bomb exploded and all 28 passengers were thrown into the air. The first person on the scene of the crash was a German man who had been a medic during World War II. He found Vesna alive with another crew member's body on top of her and a serving cart pinned against her spine. When she arrived at the hospital, everyone thought she would die. Her skull was cracked and her head was bleeding. Her legs were broken and several vertebrae were crushed. She was in a coma for three days and then miraculously woke up and asked for a cigarette. She was paralyzed from the waist down and could not remember the accident. Surgeries helped her to eventually walk again. She never had any psychological residue from the explosion, nor a fear of flying. Vesna currently holds the Guinness World Record for the highest fall survived without a parachute at 33,330 feet, and that certainly is odd. Creepy makes history more delicious. And now, this month in history. In the month of February, on the 5th, in 1917, the Constitution of Mexico was formally adopted by the Constitutional Congress. The formal name of the document is the Political Constitution of the United Mexican States, or in Spanish, Constitución Política de los Estados Unidos Mexicanos. The Constitution was drafted during the Mexican Revolution in Santiago de Querétaro, in the state of Querétaro. It was the first such document in the world to set out social rights and was specifically aimed at restricting the Roman Catholic Church in Mexico. Article 3 set up public and secular education and other articles set up land reforms and empowered the labor sector. This document served as a model for the Weimar Constitution of 1919 and the Russian Constitution of 1918. Under President Carlos Salinas de Gortari, the Constitution was revised in 1992 to better guarantee private property rights and end redistribution of land, and most of the articles restricting the Roman Catholic Church in Mexico were repealed. Dia de la Constitución is one of Mexico's annual Fiestas Patrias and takes place the first Monday of February regardless of the date. County Wexford has a long history in Ireland and is home to the Loftus Hall Township. The area is a rugged and beautiful land, and the Hook Peninsula is home to a place famously known as Ireland's most haunted house, Loftus Hall. 
Last year, 2016, marked the home's 666th year in existence. Legends about the devil and reports of hauntings are a part of the history of this mansion that has also served as a convent and a hotel. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Loftus Hall. County Wexford is on the southeast coast of Ireland, about 60 miles across the sea from Wales. Based on artifacts, it is believed that prehistoric man arrived in Wexford at the end of the last ice age, around 7,000 BC. Now, these first people were Mesolithic, and then around 6,500 BC, the Neolithic people came. And all of these groups have left these megalithic structures behind. Some of these can be seen today. And as I just said, Denise says this stuff's all over the place there. So it's not surprising that County Wexford would have their own structures. One of these things is there's these 16 tombs and 10 of them are things called portal tombs that are known as dolmens. Five are passage tombs and one is a court tomb. There are also these things called wedge tombs, which are these stone structures shaped like boxes and then they taper at one end. And I believe we talked about standing stones in a moment of oddity. I don't think we did it with Lep Castle. I think it was with a moment oddity. I can't remember, but I do remember talking about standing stones. And these are basically just these huge tablet looking type stones that have been driven into the ground and they dot the landscape all over Ireland, including here in County Wexford. And nobody knows for sure why they were put there. They're not sure if they were for a religious practice, maybe for the Druids or the Celts. They're not sure if maybe they were marking cemeteries in some way. We're just not sure, but they're definitely not natural. The Romans set their sights on England and the other areas near her, and they arrived in England in 54 BC. They conquered England, but they could not take Scotland, and they were unsuccessful with Ireland as well. The Welsh, the Picts, and the Irish attacked the Romans from all sides and dealt the Romans a huge loss. Because the Romans were not able to take Ireland, the Druids remained in Ireland far longer than they did in Britain. So the Romans were able to drive the Druids out, but they couldn't do that in Ireland. So they have a longer history in Ireland. In 2 AD, the earliest known map of Wexford was drawn by Claudius Ptolemy. He was from Alexandria, Egypt. The Celtic culture thrived for four centuries in Ireland between 400 and 800 AD. And then the Vikings arrived and they raided the Wexford area and built a trading post there. And the name Wexford comes from them. It comes from the Norse word Wastefjord. I'm sure I said that wrong, which basically means fjord of the flats. The native Irish in Wexford rebelled in May 1798. This rebellion would continue in Ireland for decades until Irish independence came for 26 of the 32 Irish counties in 1922. And as I think we covered in our This Month in History on the last episode, North Ireland is part of the United Kingdom up to this present time. Hookhead, which is Rin Duane, and I'm sure I said that wrong too, is a headland in County Wexford, Ireland, and is part of the Hook Peninsula. And a little fun fact about this area, a part of our common vernacular is the statement by hook or by crook. And it was inspired by a vow made by Oliver Cromwell that he would take Waterford by hook that was on the Wexford side of the estuary or by the village of crook on the Waterford side. So that's where by hook or by crook comes from. Raymond Le Gros came to Ireland in 1170 and he acquired land where he built the hall. This was at Houseland near Portersgate. 
The Redmond family, which goes back 700 years in Ireland, replaced the hall with a new mansion they called Redmond Hall and built it on a limestone promontory on the Hook Peninsula in 1350. The mansion had paneled walls, large dreary rooms, which is typical of a castle-like mansion building, a tapestry chamber, and three levels. The Loftus family would take ownership in the 1650s, and that mansion then would carry their name until our current day. That's why it's called Loftus Hall. How this came to be, where it was taken from the Redmond family and given to the Loftus family, is when Oliver Cromwell came in, he started confiscating properties, as happens in war. That's how countries get taken over and things. So the Act of Settlement in 1662 was established under the restored monarchy of King Charles II of England. And it made it official that a lot of these properties now could be taken over by these other families The Loftus family was one of them, so they took over Redmond Hall. Henry Loftus is the one who really was the first owner to take over that property, and they changed the name then to Loftus Hall. And he was the owner throughout the 17th century. And one of the things that he added on to this property was he built these high stone walls around gardens and just these beautiful gardens that he put in. He planted these new fruit trees, and a lot of this stone wall is still there today. Now, if you look at pictures of Loftus Hall, it just looks very stark because it's like there's nothing out there but this huge three-story building. It just kind of sits out there by itself. Charles Tottenham Loftus became owner in the 18th century, and he inherited the estate from his uncle, who was Henry Loftus. He represented County Wexford in the Irish House of Commons from 1776 to 1783, and he was the first Marquis of Ely. It was during his time as owner that a bizarre story became a legend that still survives today. There are some historians who claim that this tale goes with Tonnenham Green rather than Loftus Hall, but Charles never lived at that property, so I think this legend really is supposed to go with Loftus Hall, and that is where it's been placed traditionally. Charles had just gotten married to his second wife, and he had a daughter from his previous marriage who was named Anne. Apparently one evening, there's this storm blowing outside, crashing around, and I've heard two different ways that a stranger arrives at the mansion. I've heard both by a ship and by horseback. I'm thinking the horseback is a lot more accurate. It would be very hard for somebody who was coming by ship to even get close to the shore without crashing, I would think, and to get up to the house would seem very difficult. So it makes more sense to me that this person was on horseback. Of course, as I said, this is out in the middle of nowhere, kind of by itself there, so the family gave him shelter. He appeared to be a very refined gentleman. And, well, Anne was a young girl, and this is a good-looking, refined gentleman, and, of course, she took a liking to him. Now, apparently, he didn't meet the approval of her parents, and they either made him leave or he ran away when the parents discovered the two, uh, well, in a compromising position, shall we say. The story goes that Anne went nuts, and her parents confined her to the tapestry chamber, and she eventually died there. There was a rumor shared by Reverend Robert Tottenham that a skeleton had been found behind a closet in this chamber when it was being rebuilt. So it almost lends some credence to the fact that somebody died in this room, and their body was never removed, maybe, or they were just buried where they died. I'm not sure. Now, this is supposed to be the facts behind the story. And this story is told in so many different ways, it's hard to even get what the real official legend is. So I'm kind of bringing in all the pieces and sharing all of them with you, and then you can kind of decide for yourself. 
Some people say that Anne was just, she had a little bit of mental illness anyway, and that she just was becoming so mentally ill that her family just locked her up in the tapestry chamber because they didn't know what else to do with her. And it didn't have anything to do with her falling in love and this guy leaving or her parents making him leave. That This was just a natural thing that happened to her. Here's where the story gets bizarre. Apparently, when this strange man was in the house, the family was playing a game of cards or something. I don't know what time period we're talking about here, because for a girl to fall in love with a guy, I mean, there is love at first sight, and this could happen. But I'm thinking it seems like he would have been there for a little bit longer amount of time. But the way the story goes, it almost seems like he was just there for the night and they decided to play some cards while they were waiting for the storm to stop. Now, at some point, Anne either dropped a ring or a card on the floor, depending on whoever the storyteller is. So she bends down to pick up the card or the ring. And while she's looking under the table, she happens to look over at this young man and notices that he has something very peculiar, a cloven foot or hoof. She screams, of course, because, I mean, I would if I saw a guy who has a cloven hoof. And after she screams, the guy gets freaked out. And it's like they discovered who he is. So he crashes through the roof. Or I've also heard that he vanished in a thunderclap. It could have been both. Maybe there was a thunderclap and he crashed through the roof or he crashed through the roof and there was a thunderclap. Whatever adds drama to the legend, you know. And then he leaves this brimstone smell behind. So this has led to the legend that this guy was actually the devil or a demon of some sort and that the devil had visited Loftus Hall that night. Now, the interesting thing is, the story goes that the roof has been irreparable since. And people who visit swear that when they look up at a certain patch of the roof area, it looks like it's been patched many times and it's just not working. Is it true? Is it not? You know, that's for you guys to decide. So the roof has been irreparable at least until the late 1800s when Loftus Hall underwent a major renovation that was conducted by the then owner, the fourth Marquis of Eli. At that time, most of the building was demolished. So I'm thinking the roof would have been demolished so you wouldn't have that part of the roof that needed to be repaired anymore. So that's why it's like, I'm sure the legend really holds true. You know, who knows? The new mansion was built on the foundation. So I'm thinking the building that you see today is fairly new in comparison. It's 666 years old, but I don't know that the actual building that you're seeing there is 666 years old. In 1917, Loftus Hall was bought by the Sisters of Providence, and they turned it into a convent and school for young girls who would be interested in joining their order. Michael Devereaux bought the mansion in 1983, and he opened it as a hotel, naming it Loftus Hall Hotel. It closed in the early 1990s. His family held on to the property until 2011 when they sold it to the Quigley family from Carrig on Benau. The Quigley family has done much to preserve and restore the mansion. They've been restoring the gardens in the spirit of the 17th century period, and they're replanting trees, flowers, and shrubs that would have been available to Henry Loftus in the 17th century. They retain some of the original garden ornaments as well. There are five reception rooms and 22 bedrooms. Tours are offered on the property that include ghost tours and overnight paranormal investigations are welcomed. A new visitor center was opened in June of last year, and it gives visitors the opportunity to learn about the heritage of the property. There's a historical timeline that charts key moments in the hall's history. 
These include the invasion by Norman Knight Raymond Le Gross, who is the one who established this property in the beginning, the Redmond's Cromwellian battle, and the Fourth Marquis of Ely's extensive renovations in anticipation of a visit by Queen Victoria, who, I will point out, claimed that she did not believe any of the haunting tales that were told about Loftus Hall. So the fact that the devil may have paid a visit here or that there were any ghosts in this mansion, she didn't believe any of that. But there certainly seems to be something haunting Loftus Hall. Ghost tales go back centuries and modern day paranormal investigators have had many chilling experiences. One of the early stories was reported by the father of Reverend George Reed. He stayed in the tapestry chamber around 1790 and said something heavy leapt upon his bed growling like a dog. The curtains were torn back and the clothes stripped from the bed. He was traveling with a group and he thought they were pulling a prank, so he shouted for them to stop with their tricks, even going so far as to fire his pistol up the chimney to frighten them. He searched the room and found nothing and the door was locked. Reverend Reed would stay in that room sometime later. He was reading an article in Blackwood's magazine when the door suddenly opened of its own accord. Then he saw the figure of a woman, dressed in a stiff dress, cross the room towards the closet and then she disappeared. It happened again the following night, and Reverend Reed tried to grab the woman by the arm, but he passed right through her body. And he told those stories without knowing his father's story. I think when the two men got together and talked, they were like, yikes, something's going on in that room. And this is back in the late 1700s. The second Marquis of Eli was staying at Loftus Hall in the early 1800s, and he had his valet, Shannon, sleep in the tapestry chamber. Shannon screamed out in the middle of the night, waking the household. He claimed that the curtains of the bed had been violently torn back and he saw a tall lady dressed in stiff brocaded silk. Reverend Reed visited Loftus Hall again in 1868. At this point, the tapestry room had been renovated and was now a billiards room. He asked one of the maids how the female ghost felt about the change and she said, Oh, Master George, don't talk about her. Last night she made a horrid noise knocking the billiard balls about. Everyone has come to believe that this female ghost is the spirit of Anne Tottenham Loftus. Modern-day experiences incorporate everything from significant temperature drops to EMF spikes to full-bodied apparitions. People claim that not only does Anne haunt the place, but the devil himself. Father Thomas Broders was called upon in the 1700s to exorcise an evil spirit at the mansion. He died in 1773 and was buried in Hortown Cemetery. His epitaph reads, Here lies the body of Thomas Broders, who did good and prayed for all, and banished the devil from Loftus Hall. When Ghost Adventures visited this location, Aaron claimed that a demon climbed on top of him. So is there something evil going on here? I don't know, but very interesting that they would put down in stone on an, an epitaph that says, banish the devil from Loftus Hall. So he obviously was called out there for some reason. The most famous modern-day haunting connected to the mansion took place in September of 2014. A man named Thomas Beavis was taking the tour and snapping pictures. When he looked at the pictures after the trip, he discovered in one of the pictures something that resembled a ghostly figure of a young girl and what looked like the head of an older woman in a window. Beavis said, We were all feeling a little edgy from the tour, but when I showed the photo to my friends, we freaked. I zoomed in on all the windows to find this girl in the window. I had to take some time before I showed it to everyone just because I didn't really understand what I was looking at. That image went viral. And we actually have that picture in the show notes for this episode. 
and it has both the outside of Loftus Hall from the distance of probably where he actually took the picture, and then it zooms in to where you can see these figures. Now, to me, I would be like, oh my gosh, this is totally convincing. Those are totally ghosts. Yes, yes, yes. But it's taken in 2014 when we have Photoshop and all these ghost apps and other fun things. So is it the real deal? As I always say to you guys, unless I've taken the picture and looked at it myself and I know I haven't doctored something, I just, I find it very hard to believe. If this is a picture of a couple of spirits, it is one of the most compelling I've seen because it's not just that sometimes when you look at a picture, you can think it's a trick of the lights or it's pixelation that looks like it might be a face. Kind of when you're looking out a window at woods, just the right coloring, the right leaf shape, and pixelation can make there appear to be faces or bodies, things like that. This is clearly something that is not pixelated. So that's why I have a few doubts because just to get something this clear is truly amazing. And to me, it doesn't even look so much like it's a window. I think it's in the front door is what I'm thinking. So you guys have a look at the picture and see what you think. But it looks to me like they're standing in the front door of this place. Beavis returned to Loftus Hall later to participate in a paranormal investigation. Guess he's a glutton for punishment, huh? He said of a room on the third floor, everyone in it experienced something. The way this room would darken when the group felt there was a presence walking around was creepy to say the least. When the paranormal investigator was talking to a presence and asking it questions, nobody could deny it was answering through flashes on the EMF reader. This was enough to warrant two hot cups of tea before the next room. He claimed that the strangest experience he had was in the card room. He reported a presence in the room made a woman in our group's finger shake so much her ring fell off. Now, I was next to this woman and I've tried to make my finger shake like that, but it's impossible. You just can't shake your ring finger without moving at least one other. It's like something was just pulling on her finger and she couldn't explain how it happened. Nobody could. And I have to say, that's probably one of the strangest stories I've ever heard. Your ring, first of all, to have a ring come off your finger, most of us don't wear our rings that loose because you don't want to lose them. So they usually are on there a little bit tight. I occasionally have to get the Windex out to just get them off. And my sister, who has worked for a jewelry store, hates that I do that. So I don't know. That's got to be one of the strangest things I've heard. But the other thing that kind of interested me about that story is when I was telling you about the legend with Anne, there's two different tales that are told. One of them is that a ring fell off and another is that a card was on the floor. Now, I'm thinking that this ring that fell off, if we're talking about this being a love story, was there an exchange of a ring between her and this young man who apparently had a cloven hoof? I don't know. But I just thought it was significant that in the legend, there is a part of it that might incorporate a ring. And then it seems that something was going after a ring on this woman's finger. So I don't know. Maybe it lends a little bit of credence to her tale. On the official Loftus Hall blog, R. Redden wrote, Upon reaching the top step, a long and dark corridor waited before us, narrow and daunting. I remembered this corridor from the TV show Ghost Adventures and dreaded walking down it. Anne pointed out the rooms that had the most activity along the way. When we reached a room at the end of yet another narrow corridor, Anne told me the experiences of people who felt the presence of a childlike spirit that haunted the room that we were standing in. And I don't know where this child would be coming from because... I think Anne was a little bit older, the ghost Anne. Apparently, this tour guide is named Anne also. As she was telling me stories of hair being tugged or legs being tickled, I suddenly felt the back of my right knee being pushed, causing my leg to bend and my balance to go. My heart dropped and pounded at the same time. I straightened my knee again and felt the same pushing. This happened four times in total. 
Anne, my knee is being pushed, I stated in horror. Anne nodded, amused and interested, but not shocked and horrified like I expected her to be. I'd have to get used to the unexpected and mysterious things that this eerie house has to offer. A group of investigators were using walkie-talkies to communicate with each other. Around midnight, a loud, harsh voice came through the walkie-talkies and demanded, Attention! The group confirmed with each other that nobody had yelled that word into a walkie-talkie. Rarely does a group not have an experience here, and yet claims persist that the stories about Loftus Hall are just hoaxes. Is Loftus Hall haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, I know I want to check it out. I'm excited to see all of Ireland eventually one day. On our next episode, we are going to be featuring two universities in Denton, Texas, the University of Northern Texas and Texas Women's University. And we are going to be joined by the listener who suggested them to share some of the haunting tales that she's heard about both of these universities, Ellen Girdwood. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you. And now we have the 11th installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. And this is titled, Of Ghosts and Guns. Welcome to Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prassel. At the same time as I've been exploring these authentic ghost reports for Spectral Edition, I've also been looking into fictional ghost hunter characters. One of the things that I find in both the fact and the fiction is that a lot of times people who go after ghosts will carry guns which is kind of confusing because can you shoot a ghost? But I guess the thinking is that if the ghost happens to be an actual living criminal who's trying to scare people away from the hideout, well, maybe a pistol will come in pretty handy. I've got an article here that sort of flips this on its head. The headline is, Ghost has a revolver, threatens to shoot several men. Exciting times at Stockton, an apparition that has the people of this locality quite badly rattled. It appeared in the Seattle Star on April 12th of 1899. Stockton, California, April 12th. Fair Oaks, a populous addition to Stockton, has a real haunted house story, which has not only caused excitement in that district, but has created a good deal of interest in this city. For the past three or four nights, parties have been lying in wait with shotguns to put an end to the apparition, but it bobs up serenely after each volley. Some of the neighbors are much frightened and threaten to move out of their houses if the mystery continues. There are two excavations in the rear of the house, which is on Myrtle Avenue, and it is from these that the shadowy forms arise. Tonight, over 30 men and boys and some women visited the lonely spot to hold communication with the spirit and to endeavor to solve the mystery. The ghost hunters reached the haunted house just after dark and hid themselves in the tall grass. In a short time, the spirit made its appearance. It arose from one of the cesspools as a white swelling object, grew to about eight feet in height, and appeared to be clear of the ground. The specter finally disappeared altogether. The boys who were watching then threw rocks at the house and finally went away, leaving several men still hidden in the grass. About ten o'clock, the mysterious visitor appeared again in the same form, but from another excavation. One of the watchers sprang up and ran toward the object when a deep, muffled voice came from the pit, saying, Don't come any nearer, or I'll shoot. The adventurous ghost hunter retreated in terror. An hour later, the white object arose again. The watchers left the place at midnight more mystified than ever. 
Some say the solution of the mystery is simple, and that a wag is playing a practical joke on the superstitious ones of the neighborhood. The following facts suggest a possible solution of the mystery. The ghost always appears from one or the other of the cesspools. These pools are connected by pipes with the house and also with the ruins of a burned house nearby. The mysterious apparition appears as a white puff of smoke or vapor, or like a lace curtain dropped from a second-story window. It would be reasonable, therefore, to suppose that the creator of the ghost conceals himself in either the house or the ruins, and by forcing a puff of smoke through the sewer pipes, forms the apparition. By speaking into the pipe, the voice would appear to come from the cesspool and would have a hollow sound. It is said that a murder once took place on the spot where the white form appears, and that it is the ghost of the man which is disturbing the neighborhood. Another story has it that someone is trying to bring down the price of property for the purpose of purchasing it. At all events, the ghost story of Fair Oaks is causing more interest than anything else just at present. Well, that is pretty interesting. People shooting at ghosts and a ghost that threatens to shoot right back. You've been listening to Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prossel, and I have close to 300 of these ghost reports. I post one each Wednesday on my website, The Merry Ghost Hunter. Mary spelled M-E-R-R-Y. I hope you stop by sometime. Thanks, Tim. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you would like to send us any feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did receive an email from Kelly in Texas. Hi, Diane and Denise. I recently found your podcast and have enjoyed listening to it while at work. Makes the day go by much faster. It also makes me want to go on more family vacations. Every city my husband and I visit, we go on the local ghost tour. Good for you. Love the show. When you visit Texas, I recommend you to visit Jefferson. It has a reputation for being the most haunted city in the state, plus a Gone with the Wind museum and several antique shops. Sounds like a great place to visit. We also heard from Erin in Reno. She said, I just started listening today and I love your podcast. Was looking for a second episode to listen to when I saw the one on Virginia City. Funny thing was I was driving right past the turnoff to VC when I saw that episode. There's a little bit of that synchronicity. I drive by it twice a day and have been up there many times. I really like the cemetery and stayed at a few hotels that definitely gave me the creeps. Anyway, thanks for your great work. I really enjoyed it and it makes my two-hour commute a breeze. Well, you are welcome, Aaron, and we're so jealous that you could just go by and visit any time. We definitely want to check that city out. Richard Whitesell wrote, I just recently stumbled upon your podcast, Funny, Informative, and Just So Enjoyable to Listen To. Was wondering if you've gone to any of the haunted forts in upstate New York, which we haven't. I've never even been to upstate New York, and I think Denise has been to New York City, and that's about it. So, love to hear more about those haunted forts. And Melissa had sent us a message about our UC Berkeley episode. She goes, now, did you just do that episode because of what's been making the news? And I went, nope, another little piece of synchronicity. I think we posted it the day before everything went to hell over at UC Berkeley. But as we talked about in that episode, they have some of those infamous protests. And so I guess you got a little visual after the fact. We have a couple of iTunes reviews to share with everybody. The first one is from Perfect For You, four stars. Absolutely charming as an avid podcast listener. I'm always on the hunt for new shows to add to my queue. I've tried listening to various shows of the spooky variety as I find them fascinating, but I also find most of them too creepy. Alas, I'm a ghost-loving scaredy cat, and I have to stop listening. Not so with History Goes Bump. While it doesn't have the professional sound that many podcasts have, it has the charm that professionally produced shows lack. 
It's obvious the hosts adore the content and sharing it with like-minded individuals, and I'm always excited to see a new show available. Spooktacular and sweet, a perfect combination. Well, thank you. Perfect for you. And I hope our sound has gotten a lot more professional sounding. I think we're pretty, I think we do pretty good compared to some of them out there that are coming out of some of these networks that I would expect more from. And I will tell you, we at least edit our show so you don't get us coughing, you don't get us drinking, eating, and not all the ums and likes and other things that probably drive you guys crazy about other podcasts. I know they drive me crazy, especially when you have staff, you can edit, just edit that stuff out. It doesn't need to be in there. And from Meowcat16, five stars, a must-download podcast. I've always been fascinated by ghosts and the paranormal. My favorite subject in school was history. This podcast combines two of my most favorite subjects together with two great hostesses. Diane and Denise do an amazing job telling stories from the past with a spectacular twist. You know, I'm going to end up grabbing that too. After listening to the first podcast, I couldn't stop. I've since downloaded as many episodes as I could and can't wait to hear more. Sincerely, Carly V. P.S. Thank you for creating such an amazing podcast. Well, Carly, thanks for leaving such an amazing review. We definitely appreciate those and they help us to get attention over on iTunes and gives people a feel for, do I want to check this show out or not? Well, I want to thank you guys for hanging out with just little old me for this episode. Denise will be back on our next one. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We didn't have any new executive producers for this episode, but I thought this would be a great opportunity to thank those of you who have been giving to us for over a year now. We'd like to thank Dave and Ann Student, Melissa Patasini, Lorette Vinson, Heather Williams, Bob Sherfield, Stephen Pappas, Rhonda Borgen, John Mueller, Jenny Watt, Amy Martinez, Aaron Shipley, Stuart Putney, Liz Evans, Roger, Josh Wood, Corey Yu. Mary Beth Gardner, and Walter Mose. Thank you. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. (laughs) 